0: Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week, and be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding Podcast, sitting next to my co-founder, Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today?
1: going very well. How's it going with you, Andrew? It's
0: going really well, as well. We hope it's going great for everybody else. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, be sure to check out all of our work. We blog by ideas at focuscompounding.com. Jeff has a plan of writing up 250 plus ideas for 2020. I'm not going to stop saying okay. it. Uh, so be sure to sign up. And if you do sign up, use the podcast promo code, which will take uh, the $10 off the $60 subscription price. So bring it to $50 a month. And that promo code is the word podcast. Uh, we are going to be putting up a ton of YouTube videos this year. Uh, so make sure you hit that subscribe button and uh, thumbs this video up. And be sure to follow along if that's how you're watching us right now. And, of course, the backbone of everything is the podcast and the Podbean app. Uh, So if you're listening to us there, uh, we're happy that you are listening to us. Uh, Be sure to leave us a rating and review. That helps spread the word. Um, And I guess final is uh, at Focus Compound. That's the best way to get all the information from us, uh, at Focus Compound on Twitter. I constantly tweet out a bunch of different things. uh, So be sure to definitely check us out there. Okay. Now that that is over, let's talk about the topic today, which is how to avoid value traps and melting ice cubes. Melting ice cube is really this term that's pretty popular in the value-investing community on, you know a company like Kodak, for example, that looks Mm -hmm. cheap at five times earnings. And then it turns out that, well, it was actually very expensive, (laughs) right? So from your experience of looking at a bunch of different companies over the past, you know, 20 years, what do you, what do you think you can do to really avoid, um, you know, value traps or investing in melting ice cubes? So, uh,
1: the first thing is just look for revenue growth. I mean, the easiest thing is just that the company can Continually grows revenue a little bit okay. so that it has any revenue growth at all would be helpful And the second thing would be that it's consistently profitable and can not just free cash flow generative, but also uh, um, It does have profits on a regular basis too. both of those and
0: that's one of the screens that we actually run not the mm-hmm. revenue But that they've been consistently profitable for ten plus years. Yeah,
1: uh, I'd say j- We don't norm, I'm, it's hard for me to think of cases where we invest in companies that have consistently shrinking revenue or something, anything like that. Mm -hmm. Even when people like, uh, we own NACO, which is a, a company involved mostly in coal mining. Um... Even something like that where people would say, oh, it's a melting ice cube or whatever those things are like that, Uh, it it hasn't shown up as having declining numbers in terms of revenues or declining numbers in terms of actual tons of of coal mined each year or something. Those numbers have grown over time. Now, that doesn't mean that you're getting in so early that eventually those things will decline, which Mm -hmm. is always the question. But what I'm telling you now is that at least you can avoid getting into something that's already having declining numbers in those ways, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the other thing for me, generally, that's the big one is... um, uh, avoiding stocks that have meaningful competition. So the easiest thing, uh, the, the the thing in which a company can quickly decline. Competition
0: is the root of all evil. Yeah.
1: The way that it can quickly decline, it has to do with competition. So if it has heavy competition, then the decline can be really fast versus even if it's in, even if it's in an industry that's not gonna have a lot of demand for its product over time. If it's one of the last ones in it, and if it's not a very competitive industry, then it's gonna uh, you're gonna have a lot more preservation of value for a lot longer than you'd uh, expect. So you'd be surprised by that. Whereas if you're in some sort of um, you know retailing thing or something, so like you say you're in retail or something, and uh, like a retailer that's a value trap or a melting ice cube yeah. or something is very scary in a way that other sorts of bi- businesses aren't. A services company that's it would generally not be as
0: worrying that way. Mm-hmm. You know, um, do you think you would know a lot? sooner if you made the mistake on the service business as opposed to the real estate. Because I think a lot of people are like, um, um, like retail or whatever, like, or people that invest in malls, for example, like Sears or whatever, were a lot of people banking on, you know, they were banking on the actual real estate and stuff as well.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And so that's another good example, which is that if you're if that's what you're counting on, then you have to look at what that value is and you sort of have to do an appraisal all the time of it. One thing that would worry me is if you're doing an appraisal of a company constantly and your your valuing of it goes down over time. Mm-hmm. So you're appra- now you have to be realistic about that. It seems that once people own a stock, their appraisal of it doesn't go down Does over it change? time. No. You know, if they buy a stock, it doesn't go that, you know, um, they buy a stock at forty dollars thinking that it's worth ninety. They don't say their appraisal doesn't usually go to it's worth eighty or something when the stock goes down or when it goes up, you know? Um, but I, that's another part of it, which would be if you're getting rid of the stuff that you think is valuable. So that's a concerning thing about it would be like in the case of like a, a Sears or something like that. If your case was based on the real estate, then you'd be worried about anything that disposes of the real estate, right? Mm-hmm. So that would be the big concern. Um, the Generally, uh, having very strong solvency, so having a very strong ability to finance yourself with cash is a big help. Mm-hmm. So by far, I would say one of the difficult things about like a melting ice cube would be that they issue shares, they um, do rights offerings, have warrants, they borrow at high uh, interest rates, uh, they do any of those sorts of things, whether uh, they sell off assets or something to raise cash, which makes it happen much faster. If you have a company that's very successful and always generating some free cash flow, then you're just in a much better position mm-hmm. that way long term. Yeah.
0: And you think it really goes from the industry that they're in as well, which you kind of hit on a little bit earlier. Right? Yeah, if it's a retailer versus if it's a service business.
1: Right, so use the example of a retailer. So a retailer, in terms of your, um, whether it's a melting ice cube or something, uh, if you very carefully watch net current assets... That would be an indication of if you think that's where the value is. Like inventory turns and stuff like that? Well, just literally what is inventory per share, receivables um, per share, and uh, what are the liabilities offsetting that, and is that number going up or down? I can't tell you how often I see companies, and they still work out sometimes, mm-hmm. where um, they're a net net or something, and they actually have declining that current asset value over time. Now, if you buy at a deep enough discount, that can still work out okay for you, mm-hmm. but you just have a very clear idea of the appraisal. If if you keep appraising the company and we do this, I mean, I do this all the time, which is that I keep I have an idea of what I think the company's worth and it's not a share price number. It's some sort of multiple of something else. So it's like, if we're talking about a bank or something, it might be, I think it's worth this much in terms of deposits per share because it earns this much in, in terms of its um, earnings on those deposits mm-hmm. or if it's, you know, book value or whatever for something that's like, uh, a company that has a lot of real estate or something, it would be based on the number of acres and the price per acre, right? Mm -hmm. So like we talked about Trini- Which is always changing, right? Yeah, so we talked about like Trinity Place Holdings in a quarterly letter that I did. And we also, I think I mentioned on the podcast or something. So it depended on the average price per condo that it was likely to sell things for in New York. It had once had numbers that, I mean, people could have believed it would be 3,000 or more dollars per square foot. And then more recently, it could be that people think it's $2,000 a square foot or or worse Then your appraisal. of The company is going to decline by more than two thirds. It would Mm -hmm. decline by two thirds before debt and stuff but condo developers use a lot of debt so sure. it's a huge decline in terms of your appraisal of the company so it becomes you know a melting ice cube or whatever you would say that way mm-hmm. or it becomes a value trap in that case the melting ice cube thing is more like if you're eating up earnings over time and that's a big thing with like i'd say study the history of buffett's investments yeah the and ben graham too if you can get them it's easier to get buffett he's better covered uh, you can actually get ben graham things about what graham newman owned like in terms of how, what positions they owned, and you can go back and find the Moody's manuals and figure out what was happening with these sto- stocks. But there are different kinds of net nets than a lot of people talk about today. They usually were not losing money. So one thing that Buffett would do is he did not buy into things that consistently lost money. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, they usually kind of lost money occasionally or something. There were rare examples. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway is one of the best examples of the worst kind of net net he ever bought. Yeah. Um, now, I think he did because they were buying back stock. So they were closing mills and buying back stock. And so doing that, they would liquidate parts of their business and buy back their stock, yeah. and he thought they would buy back his stock. And they did offer to buy back his stock. Yeah. I think without the stock buybacks, he wouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a good example because they just look at what kinds of net nets he actually bought. And the other thing is control investing, So, which is not something that most people listening to this can do. But if you either are able to have some influence or control over the business, that might be a melting ice cube, or you're able to... Um, Following the coattails of someone who has that. An mm-hmm. example would be like I invested in Barnes & Noble. Uh, at the time, there was a proxy battle with people who weren't the family members who were intending to take the company in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And when they lost to the, um, the founding family there and the the Riggio family decided to invest more in Nook, then I sold out of the business. Whereas if they had, say really cut down on their investment in nook and things like that and had focused on generating a lot of free cash flow or whatever then it would be different
0: so it does depend on who's in charge and what their attitudes are how much of you think um the situation is because of inertia right so if i was a technology investor where technology is always rapidly changing Mm -hmm. and there's always you know a a 12 year old in their garage trying Mm -hmm. to compete with you I would argue that inertia could be what really just destroys like those companies, right? But of course, in the, in the best case scenario, in the way that we invest, is obviously we want to invest in companies where inertia is a good thing, right? Right. Where it's just it's business as usual. It's kind of been the same thing. The competitive landscape isn't that bad. I mean, you were talking about the one thing that you care most about is predictability and mm-hmm. competition, right? But how much do you think um, you know companies failing is due to inertia? Like, talk about like the real estate. Right. Or right. real estate or um, I'm sorry, um retailers. Retailers, right? Yeah. I mean, how much of that do you think was okay, well, we'll try it this way, we'll see if we could, you know, make things work this way, you know, as opposed to adopting well, other models. Right. So
1: even using the idea of competition or something, I'd much rather invest in a company in retail. Um, we, we don't generally own retailers, but I'd much rather invest in a company in retail like um uh, tandy leather or something, which I think has problems, but I don't think they're generally uh, competitive problems. Uh-huh. I think the competitive problems are overstated. So you think, I think they're operational so like, problems? Yeah. yeah, I think that, and there are basic business model issues with it, which I'm not saying isn't a problem. I think that there's some issues about just how profitable the stores can be and whether you can get enough high quality store managers and, and some other things. So like you're that. saying that you'd
0: rather invest in a company that has operating problems yes. as opposed
1: to. Competition, yeah, and, and in products. retailers, like I'd much, much rather. I mean, Sears was a general retailer, but in general, uh, I would rather invest in more general retailers or in niches that they dominate, like Tandy does, than invest in like specialty retail. Because if you get the specialty retail stuff right, you'll make a ton of money. Yeah. But those are the like net nets and things that worry me. So if if someone said I have a net net that is, uh, let's say Tandy was a net net, it, mm-hmm. it isn't right now, to my knowledge. It's flirted with being a net net at times. It's been pretty close. Um, then I'd be interested in that because I think that's an operational issue. And there's things that you can see, like how good their gross margins are and their yeah. gross profitability, but how poor their operating numbers are sometime. That gives you an indication that there's stuff that they could be cut or that could be improved. Like there, And if you had knowledge, my guess is if you had knowledge, inside knowledge of how the business works and stuff, that you could see what the board sees and stuff, that you would see that some stores perform well and some don't, probably. Mm-hmm. Sure. I don't know that for a fact. But if that's the case, that's a lot more interesting than something that's a chain-wide issue. And so I just think operational there's stuff that you could turn around there. Uh, Same thing if someone said like, there's a net net supermarket, that would interest me a lot more than certain other kinds of net nets. If you told me that there was a company that was in fashion retailer stuff that was a net net, that would worry me more because you could make a ton of money if something turns around in the right way for them, but I can't really evaluate that and it feels like a competitive issue. Mm -hmm. Fashion stuff is a competitive issue about what others are doing versus what you're doing. You want something that, with any of these things, you want something that's within your control. And that's the thing that, like, they'll always have a plan or something, say Sears or something like that. You know, they'll have this plan. But your competitors also have plans. And um, you want things that are mostly the company that you're looking at can control most of it and are issues that seem solvable within the company versus issues that are going to depend on how competitors react and how you react to those competitors. Mm -hmm. You know, like the Berkshire Hathaway example they were moving a lot. They had already moved a lot. Um, other companies, all their competitors have been moved from like the New England area down to the southern United States where labor was cheaper and some things like that. And um, the other thing that can happen there is if they cut their prices, then what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know? Sure. And you don't want businesses yeah, like what that to you. Do? So you want, your price, yeah. yeah. So you want businesses that are more insulated from that. Their problem mostly for that kind of company, actually for Berkshire, was CapEx. If other people spend on CapEx, you have to spend mm-hmm. on CapEx, you yeah. know. So you want to avoid those kinds of things and focus more on ones that like you seem like they can control. Their own destiny the most as possible, which usually means less competition
0: and means operational problems, not competitive problems. And where and where price isn't the main competitive, you know, factor, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Price being the main competitive factor is a problem, but also anything that's sort of like I said, like fashion type stuff. So take restaurants. If you have restaurants where. Um, if you have a restaurant situation where like so a restaurant that you have that could really be a melting ice cube is if you have same store sales going against you for like the first time in the company's history or something uh-huh. and what they do is not a very basic kind of thing. Like I I um uh, was going to write up we did a huge research and stuff on company Gregs in the UK and uh, didn't come out within time the stock rebounded a big amount but what's interesting about it is you could tell that it had the worst operating margin in like 25 years but Greg's is a very basic kind of company i don't know what to compare it to in the u.s except like maybe take subway and starbucks and cross them, yeah uh-huh. like something like that it's so basic like we talked about Domino's or dunkin donuts or something of how that kind of business can be turned around if mm-hmm. it runs into problems in a way that um if you were telling me uh um like uh I don't know, uh, something like a um, P.F. Chang's or something, okay? Mm-hmm. So if you're telling me that P.F. Chang's was having problems, I would say, I I don't know. It's possible that they could be a good concept that's getting more and more popular for a time and yeah. then less popular, and I don't know why it could be more people coming in and competing with them, doing the same thing, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a little more specific what they're doing as opposed to something that's very
0: based on just like speed, price, reliability, yeah. you know, those sorts of things. Well, I think a good actual Example, that's Jamba Juice. I know they're so okay, public, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But I remember. I mean, that was like I don't want to call it a fad, but I mean that everyone was pretty big about it. Jamba sure, Juice. there's lots and, of and, yeah. And I don't know how the companies do. I know they are public. I haven't looked at them in a very long time, but I don't think I see the same amount of people that are crazy about Jamba Juice that they were, you know, 15 years ago. Right, and the problem Jeff the problem, likes Jamba Juice. The problem always with
1: those <laughs> is how many they
0: open. Right, how
1: many they open versus how many competitors can open versus them. That's why things like restaurants and stuff are hard because usually it's too easy for other people to get into the business. That's a big concern that I have usually when someone says, We talk about this offline all the time, where you'll say, like, what this business model is and what the uh, predicted returns are on it or what they're earning and stuff. And my concern is always, like, yeah, but if it's that easy, what you're like that you can earn back in three years after opening a store. Then eventually, everyone's going to open a yeah, store. Yeah, sure. You know what I mean. And so it, you want to find things where, for some reason, that isn't the case. Mm-hmm. And uh, those what
0: what what are situations where that's not the case?
1: Uh, Tandy, it's not the case because of scale. Mm -hmm. So Tandy, the economics of a single store are so, uh, of a single product and stuff are so good, but the volume being done over a single store isn't very much. Mm -hmm. So they don't earn a ton per store. And then over an entire chain is really surprisingly low considering how uh, big they are. So it's an industry where you need market share of like having half the industry just to be making really good profits. An example that you know too is like Breeze Eastern. Mm -hmm. So Breeze Eastern, they had like half the market for search and rescue helicopter hoists. And um, their competitor probably had like a quarter or something and that might be generous, like maybe their relative size was even bigger than double. But basically two companies had most of the uh, market Mm -hmm. and if someone else came in, they wouldn't be making money. They just wouldn't even be having enough because of how small the industry was. So that's what I mean about like um, the the things that are scary are the really, really big ones. That's like Sears is a good example of that. The things that are such big industries always worry me because if you're making – they're just – everyone wants to compete in that industry, Mm -hmm. right? So that's always a concern that like it will attract a lot of competition into that versus something that seems like a fairly small um, niche. And a lot of times there's a small local niche. That's one of the easiest is like, we like micro cap stocks and things compared to what most people are looking at. That's more possible that you have a niche of you're only in certain kinds of towns. Well, it's you kind of like village, that supermarkets, right? Way. right? So it's hard to develop stores yeah. around them. Uh-huh. It can also be things like you're in small towns. I mean, people have pointed out like, uh, you know, not that we said positive things, about or whatever, but there was a thing where people were asking about Hibbett Sports and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, Hibbett Sports is in more small towns compared to other things. And I think there's still significant competition from like online and stuff, but it is true they're the last, choice of where you'll put a competing store sure. so the last choice of where you'll put um, so it doesn't if you go to like visit Hibbit Sports and you visit a, a Dick's Sporting Goods um, and you're like well Dick's is much better uh, it doesn't matter because the Hibbit is usually in the town that's the last place that Dick's will put it in yes yeah, sure. um, you know th- the same sort of thing like we've talked about that with other things before where I, we've said okay well I'd rather have a thing that competes with Dave and Buster or something that's in um, not Dallas, Fort Worth, where we are, which is one of the first places that they'll put the cluster stores around and stuff. I mean, they're actually from around there, but that, the, those kinds of places and suburban places like that, higher income suburban, whatever dense places, versus like a little more rural or like a city that's kind of on its own or something, they have more protection from those kinds of things, right? So, locals often a really good protection that you have.
0: Yeah, I remember, and kind of on this topic of competition, when we were in, um, in New York and we were staying mm-hmm. in New Jersey, where we were on our trip for New York City, we were staying in New Jersey, we went to um the boardwalk i mean what do you call it the jersey shore i don't know yeah it was, were we? uh
1: jenkinson boardwalk and point pleasant
0: there you go yeah. and we were at an arcade and we were you know playing games wherever and they had like three arcades within yes. like a minute like i mean literally like just walking, down the yeah. down the board literally on the boardwalk yeah. yeah you know and i was like what why why did this happen i mean but it, i guess you get a lot a lot of foot traffic and maybe there's enough you know room for everybody to make money but i mean didn't you think that was kind of interesting yeah it is interesting but you could see the captive audience that you had
1: and you were there at a time where there was no nobody was there for yeah. the beach thank god yeah. yeah but if you're there when people are there for the beach then obviously then you have an audience there that's coming in all the time to play those games and stuff. And there's so little that you put into them but that same concept which looks attractive so if you had something you know like so say say that something was wrong with that business we didn't you know it's a private business we don't know anything about it but say that you have something that's on the boardwalk in new jersey there that's an arcade and it runs into problems i'd be very interested in that that yeah. would be one of the first things i would look Look at be really excited like an around. operating thing. It right? seems like it's yeah. an
0: operating issue, not a competitive issue. Yeah. Jeff has always said that if and I I swear <laughs> I was so surprised by it. I asked him probably two and a half years ago, and it's always stuck with me. If he were to start a business on his own, what would it be? You know, here I am thinking, okay, this guy's looked at <laughs> trillions of companies over the years. Yeah. He's going to come up with some just perfect thing, and he said an arcade, and I was surprised by it. But it makes yeah. a lot of sense, right? Especially when we were at this arcade, I was you know kind of doing my own little scuttlebutt and just looking around. I was like, wow, I don't think. There's anyone over 16 years old that's working here and probably making you know minimum wage, and it's like the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, right? and
1: they eventually they eventually converted it to the um they put some tech capex into that one. They have waited forever to do that. Yeah. So before then they had you know needed more labor, so they cut down on labor by doing that. But it's just the margins on that stuff, right? So what the gross margins are on that, and that place wasn't even one that sold food and beverage or no, any nothing, of that no, stuff nothing. that also they, they were they had to. free
0: pizza i did see the free pizza yeah. I, did, I did look at it i, I didn't have a piece <laughs> <I didn't look. laughs> free pizza and coffee which i thought was interesting <laughs> uh, but no i mean even looking at it and you know you can make the argument so i guess talking about like melting ice cubes right mm-hmm. and, and value traps people would be like oh well do kids even want to play arcades anymore blah 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 but you got ipads and you know all this other stimulus and youtubes and and kids watching other kids play video mm-hmm. games it's crazy but there's I don't think arcades are gonna go away. Like there's just something like special about actually doing it in person. It's
1: like one of those things, you know? Yeah. But I do think that you can have and we talked about this with like gyms and things, same thing. I think you can have something that becomes a bigger and bigger part of the society and the industry can do okay. And yet you can be looking at a company that's losing money over time, that that is getting worse off because their same store sales are getting worse. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that would be competition. So, like, we were talking about the arcade thing. If it's an arcade on the boardwalk there and it's having problems, I'd be very interested. But if it's an arcade in a town where it was the only arcade there at first and now there are three there and that's why the returns have gone down, that's the kind of thing that worries me. So it's always the competition aspect of it. I always get worried about when, when people talk about these um value traps and things where it's continually uh more and more competition is the fear right mm-hmm. so that like we're looking at something where basically a technology company and we talk to some people who are knowledgeable about the technology and basically what they're saying is it's gotten cheaper and cheaper to basically take things almost off the shelf you can put it together yourself it's a total commodity you assemble it yourself and um, can duplicate what used to be a lot of effort on their part. What, like ten years ago, yeah. was a pretty big sort of thing that had to be done by a major technology company is now something that you can almost do at home mm-hmm. um, using uh, products that are consumer grade type products, right? To do the same things, if you're knowledgeable about artificial intelligence, which yeah. sure most people aren't, but you don't need a lot of people who are knowledgeable about artificial intelligence. Not to a lot do of people this. have a
0: PhD in machine learning, all yeah. Right?
1: But if, but, but if you have a small group of people who have that, okay, and now and a bunch of companies could get that without any trouble, then you have a small team of people who can do that you don't need very impressive products to be able to do that whereas you used to need all sorts of time and computing power and all sorts of things that they needed before and so that kind of thing really worries me as opposed usually as opposed to this industry is declining a lot yeah um the other thing that worries me is that there's no value add thing, so those seem to decline really really quickly so there have been a couple companies that i've avoided um, I don't want to say even for ethical reasons or something. People think it's for ethical reasons, but it's more like the way in which the product was sold and stuff was s- strange. Um, so, uh, uh, so, the, so uh, an example would be there was one company that uh, had fine looking financial stuff, but uh, we did not write up for the newsletter because we looked at it, which was in was- MLM. No, Dang. but there are some that are. There are yeah. some that's other reason for avoiding them. But um, it was a company that did... Uh, it was doing financial services by basically doing, like, debit cards for colleges um, where the students hated the debit cards, but because of the way the deal was structured, the colleges loved it. Okay. What company was So the was this? colleges... Um, I think it was eventually named Hire One. Okay. Okay? So the way that it was structured, you could tell, was very attractive to the college. And the students were kind of captive uh, yeah. audience, a <laughs> yeah. uh, captive uh, market there. Forced. And they would be like, charge pretty high fees. So they end up with like paying $5 fees nice. and stuff all the time. And um, it was clear the customer service stuff was very poor on that. They were very dissatisfied with it, whatever. And yet, um, because the way it was set up, they originally got this business with the colleges. But just looking at it, it worried me that they weren't. Happy about it, mm-hmm. and that they were essentially the customers that you needed, and that what they were doing wasn't really adding value. Mm-hmm. That also worries me about the, the company that we we're just mentioning, um, which is uh, Sirens, um, which is the one that uh, was the, the sp- spin off spin-off and is doing something that I think has gotten kind of basic um, and commoditized. They still, their sales process and everything could be fine. If you know anything about Sirens, email me info at com. Okay. Um, and, you know, so car makers and stuff could still like this for a bunch of different reasons, almost as if they're like consulting with them on a project that's useful, even though the thing they're doing is now pretty basic. But it still worries me because I'm not sure that the thing they're doing actually adds that much value anymore. Whereas when we invest in companies, even like take uh, NACA or something, which is declining over time, um, uh, coal mining in terms of its use as fuel and utilities, right? Mm -hmm. So that's declining. But- to the utilities or to whoever else is using them to mine, uh, do mining as a service, right? Which is how they talk about it. They they have the entire, uh, they do everything for them. It's still a big value add yeah. to take over all of that mine and do sure. that thing for them. And that kind of thing is very valuable in a way that I don't worry as much about. Um, same thing when people talk to me about like ad agencies and they're like, you know, they've had a very hard time growing over time and stuff. It's not something I worry about as being a value trap if you buy it at a really cheap price, yeah. Because I do think that they add a ton of value uh, still in those cases and. I think they have relatively little competition in the sense that you don't like to switch them that much. Mm-hmm. So same sort of thing. So it's a situation where I think you could have like no revenue growth for a long time, but it's not something where I worry about it becoming Sears. I don't worry about any ad big ad agency being like any big department
0: store. Mm-hmm. I'd be way
1: more worried about big department stores than big ad
0: agencies. Do you think a lot of it too is, I guess like if the the experience component of it for the customer. So like we were talking about like arcades and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And like, I guess their competition is what, I mean uh, iPads and I guess, like, all that other stuff that little kids play on. They nowadays. claim its Uh-huh. But I'm not I, sure that it yeah, is. But yeah, but, I mean, but my point is, is, though, like, people still value, like, the experience, I think, of going and, you know, playing in these arcades, and then you get the tickets, and then you get to, you know, you pay a pretty much, like, 50 bucks to play to buy, like, $2 in candy, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why it's great business, right? Um, or it's even, like, going to theme parks or, like, Six Flags. Like, people mm-hmm. value, like, that that actual experience of going yeah. out. It's very much experience-based, as opposed to, like, you know, Kodak, for example, it's you know the new technology was just better, so you had a better experience with it. Right? Yeah,
1: and I think you you are touching something true that that's true, which is like the more ephemeral it is, the more that it's hard to tell what. Uh, to put in a dollar value on what you're getting out of it, yeah, which is always the hard thing about a retailer because retailers always say that they give you this experience that you know going to uh, Neiman I mean, Marcus. You could or say North the same thing about Radio Shack, right? You go, right.
0: You, you're a, you're a technology buff, you know, whatever you, you enjoy to go there, and then you walk into this place, you want They have just. Everything you could possibly need to like build computers mm-hmm. and stuff like that, right? Yeah. yeah,
1: and for some people, it's a really special experience that way. But for other people, it's a very basic sort of commodity type thing that they're getting out
0: of it, you yeah. know. And I think that happens a lot.
1: The retailers tend to like get that very company. I could see
0: why how Amazon or these other one-off retailers or whatever could hurt Radio Shack, right? I mean, Amazon, like Newegg or whatever. You know, what I mean? yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. incredibly cheap. Yeah, exactly. And and those sorts and of they, things were hurt first by it. Yeah, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. but yeah. like
0: an arcade other type of theme park attractions you know stuff like that where it's very much experience based
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: I, I agree with that,
1: that that's a hard thing to, I mean, there's lots of things where people say the technology, I mean, there's so many cases where people say the technology thing is going to devastate that industry and it doesn't. Yeah. I've mentioned this many times before, but it was literally something that people talked about and were worried about with supermarkets when I invested in them in like yeah. two thousand, nineteen ninety nine. 1999. Yeah. So we're talking about 20 years that people said that online groceries in the U.S. were going to be a big deal for supermarkets. Supermarkets barely notice it to this day. They yeah. they do some things with it.
0: They compete with something. Well, they really, it's but barely they barely noticeable. They didn't really have inertia, right? Now they all have their own version of like some pickup or you they're, know, they're stuff they like that. they're all trying to do it. Yeah. They're
1: kind of trying to force it on the um, customers, whether the customers want it or. But not. I don't
0: think customers want it. I don't
1: know. I I don't know the answer to that. But it's it's been something that people believe would happen for a long time, and hasn't happened. Whereas in other cases, things like say newspapers or something yeah. that changed overnight. But some of that is understanding the business too, because like newspapers, right? A big part of it is understanding classifieds. Mm-hmm. So if you didn't understand how quickly class. All classified stuff went online basically that all the business that had been classified which is a big part of their business like instantly went online that's something that you know um, whether it was originally Craigslist and stuff or now it's Facebook and uh, Craig on top of all those sorts of things like ways of finding things in your local area of you know I have this thing to sell and that kind of stuff went immediately yeah. and it was a really big part of their business and so that kind of changed things yeah. in a huge way but you have to understand what the value is that they're adding mm-hmm. some of the newspaper thing was just like being a bulletin board it's not yeah. a special thing that they're they're serving it's just a way of, you know, getting people in communication with each other.
0: Right? Well, if I lived in New York City, I certainly would like uh, my groceries delivered to me because I don't think I saw any sort of... Uh, it makes per- of it makes a ton
1: of sense in cities and in rural areas, yeah. but in suburban areas, it's really hard to compete yeah. with a big supermarket, sure. a 60, 70, 80,000 square foot supermarket yeah. shopping on your own there. That's tough to compete with by
0: online. It's yeah. very hard to come up with a model that makes sense. Got it. Well, that is the end of today's podcast. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff and myself. If this is the first time that you are checking with us, be sure to subscribe and thumbs this video up. Leave us a rating review. That goes a very long way with us, and we are certainly appreciative of anything, uh, any way that people support us. Um, Also, if you want to um, check out all of our other work as well. Be sure to go to focuscompounding.com. And if you want to sign up, use the podcast promo code, which is podcast, and that will take $10 off of the subscription price, bring it from $60 a month to $50 a month. Jeff is going to write like a madman, 250 plus different ideas this year. And we already have over a hundred different ideas on the website as well. So it's a small community of investors that invest in overlooked stocks um, you know, so definitely if you want to join us, check us out there. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week, and be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors that focus compounding capital management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along.